Well, good morning, church. Good morning. This morning, we are going to be back in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at a passage that maybe some of you noticed we uh, passed over while we were in chapter 13. And the reason we passed by it is not because it's unimportant, but because it's incredibly important in the book of Revelation. And I wanted to give particular attention to that passage, which is found in chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. Revelation 13, 8, 9, and 10. And I say it's important because it's right in the middle of the book. And if you know anything about Jewish writing, especially more poetic literature, which Revelation is, it's uh, apocalyptic, and one of the things you ought to pay attention to, and know you should pay attention to, is the very middle. The important information comes in the center, and here in the fourth of seven cycles, in the center of the section, not the very center, but it's close, there are these verses about the death of Christ, the book of life, and the endurance and faith of the saints. And I think, uh, I think this passage is worth a closer look. So Revelation 13, 8 through 10. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. It is a light to our path and a lamp unto our feet. Thank You for Your Spirit that enables us to understand. Lord, we once walked in darkness, but You have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. And Lord, I pray that You would encourage Your church this morning that You would build us up so that we would be more fruitful and more faithful, less anxious and more courageous in Christ. pray that You would do this work for us. Help me to preach. Help us to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage begins in the middle of a sentence. And that sentence begins in verse 7 with a, a declaration of the authority that is given to the beast. He has authority over all the inhabitants of the earth from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. It's kind of the same thing that's said to Christ as this beast comes imitating and aping the Lord Jesus. And all of these people worship the beast. With one exception, there is one group of people who will never fall for the beast's deceptions, they will never be taken captive by him, they will not receive his mark, and they will never bow the knee ultimately to, to the beast. They're not going to worship all those false religions and false systems in the world. And who are they? Who is this singular group that opposes the world and holds fast to Christ? They are those whose names are written in the book of life. And you've all heard of the book of life. It's, it's that book in heaven where the names of all of the saints, of all of those who believe and will be saved, are written down. It's a book that will be taken out at the final judgment, read aloud, and those who exist therein will enter into eternal life. Or maybe you've been to... Uh, an upscale restaurant before, an expensive fundraiser dinner, whatever it is, I never have, but, but somewhere that in order to get in, you have to make reservations and you have to buy a ticket. And when you show up at the door, the host comes to you and he leads you over to his desk. And as he asks for your name, he begins flipping through a book or through sheets. What's he looking for? Well, obviously, he's looking for your name. He wants to see if it's in the book. He wants to know if you have a reason to be there. He wants to know if 
you have grounds to go in and if he's authorized to permit you entry. And if your name's not on the list, guess what? You're not going in. You'll be asked to leave. And that's what this book of life is. This is the guest list of eternal life. It's the, it's the guest list into heaven and the new earth. And if you want to go in, if you want to be found there in eternity, your name had better be found in that book. That's how important this is. This is it's not getting into a fancy supper. This is preservation from the beast or being given into his hands. This is eternal life or eternal destruction. Everyone not in the book worships the beast. Whether or not your name is found in this book of life is of eternal and significant importance. But did you notice that it's not actually called the book of life? Did you notice that when we read the passage? That's not its full title. Its full title is this. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so this isn't just a book of life, it's also a book of death. There's death right there in the title. Someone is slain, someone is slaughtered. What does that mean? Well, it means everyone whose name is in this book is there because they are covered. They're sheltered. It's like in Passover, the angel of death is coming through the land and he passes over the houses that have the blood on the, on the lintel and on the doorposts. When the angel of death sees the blood, passes over these houses. In the same way, those whose names are in the book are covered, their sins atoned for by the Lamb who was slain. It's His book. And if your name is in it, it's not because of anything you've done. It's because... And only because of the work of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The wages of sin is death. Those wages must be paid. And this book is a, is a ledger of sorts. You go through the book and everybody in this book has a debt called sin. But if you were to follow their name across to the other side, it would say, paid in full, paid by the blood of the Lamb. This is a book of those whose debt has been paid. It's because of the work of Christ who takes away the sins of the world. So if your name is in this book, you're trusting in Christ for the salvation, for the atoning of your sins. But that isn't even the most astonishing thing about this book. More fascinating the title is when it was written. It is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain And it was written before the foundation of the world. Do you notice that? Verse 8. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. That's what makes this passage so incredibly profound. I mean, think about this. Before Genesis 1-1, Before, in the beginning, there was a book. Of course, not a literal book, but a a codex in the mind of God. And that book had a name. It was these words. And in the name of that book were the words, The Lamb Who Was Slain. Before creation. You understand what this is saying? Before God said, Let there be light. He knew that the devil would tempt Adam and Eve. And he knew that Adam and Eve would give in to that temptation. And he knew that the world he was about to create would fall. He knew that he would flood the world and begin again with Noah. He knew that he would call Abraham. And from Abraham's descendants, King David. And from David's descendants, he would bring forward a Savior. He promised he would in Genesis 3 because he knew he would all along. His only begotten Son would enter the world in the flesh. He knew that this Son would be rejected. He knew this Son would die by crucifixion and endure God His own judicial wrath against sin. He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. 
God knew all of this would happen before you even get to book 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of your Bible. But not only did he know that it would happen, well, in fact, the reason he knew it would happen is because he ordained that it would come to pass. You understand that God is not looking forward into the future to see, well, what would happen if I were to create things this way? And then seeing what would happen, he planned accordingly. No, that the entire ark of redemption was part of the plan from the beginning. God wasn't up in heaven creating the world thinking, well, well, I hope this turns out the way I want. I mean, surely Adam and Eve, they're not going to eat from that tree, are they? And then when Adam and Eve disobeyed, he wasn't surprised. I mean, can you imagine God in heaven wringing his hands together, wondering anxiously what's he's, what's he's going to do now that his master plan of creation has gone awry? Oh no, what have they done? I never in a million years expected this to happen. What am I going to do now? Then after thinking for a few thousand years, he decides to flood the world. First time didn't work, let's start over. But the flood failed too. So he comes up with another plan. Plan C. Abraham and the Jews. But they reject his plan. And they reject the Messiah. And God is thwarted by the will of his creatures once again. So in a last ditch effort to kind of hail Mary, God institutes the church at the 11th hour. Now this is all sarcasm, by the way. None of it is true. It's all utterly foolish. I mean, some people think this. Some people think that God is only always acting in response to His creatures. We do something, God responds. He doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. He, he knows all the possible outcomes, but none with certainty. And everything that He does is a response to the absolute free will of His creation. This is not how it works. In fact, what I just described is actually a heresy called open theism. And it's as much a denial of the historic doctrine of God as a denial of the Trinity itself. God does not and never has acted in response to His creatures. God has ordained before creation everything that would come to pass, including the fall. And we know it because before creation happened, He had likewise ordained salvation from that fall by the death of His Son, the slain Lamb. And you, you have to understand this about the God you serve. This world belongs to Him, and everyone and everything in it belongs to Him, and nothing that happens happens apart from His decree. It's all ordained. And now we have to be careful here. God ordaining the fall does not mean that He forced Satan to tempt Adam and Eve. It does not mean that He coerced them to disobey and disregard His commands. What Adam did, he did willingly. God, is not, God does not sin, nor does He tempt anyone to sin. James 1.13 But what it does mean is that the fall was certain to happen. It was God's will for Adam to be tested, and it was God's will to let Adam stand and fall without the divine intervention that could have prevented it from happening. Because God could have intervened, couldn't He? If He didn't want to happen, if He didn't want it to happen, He could have stopped it. And He didn't. And you say, well, that's because Adam had the free will to choose and do it, and God wasn't going to interfere with that. God actually, well, didn't we just say He knew this would happen before creation? He ordained that it would happen before creation, the book of the Lamb who was slain, written before the foundation of the world. But God could have hindered Satan and prevented him, as he had many, done, many times before and had done many times since. But there in the garden, he didn't do any of that. And really, whether you believe in, in, in the freedom of the human will or not, it doesn't change a thing. Even if Adam was totally free, God could have stopped him, and he didn't. God ordained the fall as part of His eternal plan, and He did so for His glory and for the greater good of His creation. So He didn't merely allow Adam and Eve to be tempted and then react. He didn't look through the corridors of time and then see the fall, that speed bump, and plan accordingly. It was His will that the world would fall so that He would receive the ultimate glory. 
And if that begins to trouble you, just answer this question. Did God work creation to make mankind its central figure? Or was it for Himself? The answer is, was for Himself. Isaiah 43, 7, God created all things primarily for His glory. This world exists not for our benefit, though we benefit greatly from the Lord in it. But this world exists primarily as a stage for the glory of God. This is a problem for you, and you think, well, then God must be the author of sin. Well, what do you do with the Gospels? I mean, no one disputes that God ordained His Son to die, do they? That's crystal clear. God ordained for the Son of God to be tortured, mistreated, crucified. And the fact that God ordained this really doesn't seem to bother anybody. Even though it's worse. It's deicide. It's the killing of God in the flesh. This is infinitely worse than the rebellion of animated dirt. And yet nobody sees the death of Christ and says, it's a problem that God ordained that to happen. Why? Because I think at the heart of the matter, and why people are are so offended at God ordaining the fall, but not at God ordaining the cross, is because of a core flaw in our fallen nature. And it's that we want the world to be all about us. We want the world to be a stage for our glory. And so we don't mind God ordaining His Son to be killed, treated spitefully, because it benefits us. But how dare God ordain that bad things happen to people like me? We don't like that. Puts us in the backseat of the car, puts us in the trunk, right? It brings up this tension between creature and creator. We want creation to be about us. We want to be the wise ones. We want to tell God how we should do things. And we question God, not like the psalmist does, but like a, like a child talking back to their parents because they don't understand why a parent is doing what they do and they think they know better. Have you ever experienced this as parents? You tell your child to do something. Maybe you take them somewhere. You make them eat something, whatever it is. And they get angry and they start to talk back and they tell you what you should do instead. There's a twofold reason behind this. One, they think they know better. And two, they don't think you know anything at all. But that doesn't mean that what the parent is doing is wrong. It just means that the child isn't able to understand. And in that lack of understanding, becomes proud. The ignorance gives birth to a pride that says, Mom, Dad, why are you doing what you're doing? Doesn't seem right to me. And so when we approach this doctrine of God ordaining all things, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, we must approach it with humility. We must approach it like little children who know that They don't know anything. I mean, who are we to talk back to God and ask Him, why are you doing it this way? And so this doctrine, the sovereignty of God, it's it's not primarily one to be argued out, but it is one that focuses and forces us to to reckon with our own frailty of thought and our our smallness in our human humanity. and, and And it makes us humbly submit, maybe wrestle, with the wisdom of God. But that's what God calls us to in a passage like this. And here in the middle of the book of Revelation, this is one of two pillars that upholds our hope. The sovereignty of God. Because it reminds us that the death of Christ and every other less horrific thing that happens, the devastation brought about by human pride, rebellion, demon worship in the land, sins against each other. All of it comes ultimately not at the whims of the devil or of evil men or of random chance, but it comes according to the all-wise plan of a loving Heavenly Father. It's a good thing to be reminded of this when the whole world seems to be worshiping the beast. 
It's a good thing to be reminded of when everything seems to be falling apart and the church surrounded and, and foolishness and chaos commanding the nations. It's good to be reminded that it's still going according to plan. God is sovereign over all of this. He knows what's happening. He's not surprised. And not only is He not surprised, He is working it for the good of His people. And so even though I have no idea why God is doing things the way He is, I don't have to. He has ordained evil come to pass a hundred million times before, and every time it was for His glory and for the good of His people, and that's never going to change. I mean, what's the alternative, by the way, to God ordaining it? Satan getting the upper hand? You making bad decisions that can do nothing but ruin your life? Random acts and the whims of, uh, you know, as Shakespeare said, the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Putting your life this way or that way? What brings more comfort to the saint? That or knowing that I don't understand why or what is happening, but I know that God, all-wise and all-loving, is bringing this terrible thing to pass for His glory and for my good. I don't think a Christian will ever be able to escape being anxious if they don't have this in their minds. God is bringing it to pass for my good. So don't be anxious. God is always in control. Always. From the fall to the flood. From the cross to the second coming. God is working out His perfect will. And you can trust Him. You don't need to be afraid. Well, that's one. One of the pillars that upholds our hope in this passage. God is sovereign over the evil in the world. But there is a second pillar of our hope and faith in this text. God not only ordains that the Lamb would be slain, along with everything that implies, including the necessary evil to bring it to pass, but He also ordains the names that are written in that book. In the book of life are written the names of all the people who God will save. In that book are the names of those for whom Christ died. It's called the book of life and it was written before God created anything. And right here in Revelation 13 is a reminder of God's electing grace and how it should comfort and give us assurance in the face of overwhelming tribulation. That's what it's here for. And the unfortunate fact is that this glorious and encouraging doctrine that puts a foundation under our feet which cannot be shaken, it's one of the most controversial doctrines in the church today. And if you trace the reason why, why is it so difficult for us to believe in the doctrine of election, it's actually usually the same reason why we find God ordaining the fall so hard to take. And not hard as in difficult to understand. It's not difficult to understand. It's hard the way that people use it in uh, John 6.60. Hard as in grating to the mind. It's not hard to understand, but it is hard to take. Hard to accept. And it's hard to accept because we really don't know the freedom and the greatness and the goodness of God. You see, when you trust somebody wholeheartedly and you love them and you know they love you and you know that they're wise and you know that they'll never make a mistake and you know that they're just and they'll never do anything wrong, if you know that, you believe them when they say something hard to accept. Don't you? You've never led me astray before. You have always led me on the right path. You will always do what is right. I don't understand why you do it this way, but I trust you. Now, I can, I, I can sympathize with those who may not be settled on this doctrine. I know when I first became a Christian for the first two or three years, I was convinced that, well, not only that our wills were totally free, but that God responded to us. I, I believe that heresy I mentioned uh, earlier. I even, had a, I even had a project in Bible school uh, regarding free will, and that was my answer. I even had a little chart drawn out to, to portray it and everything. And it was heresy. It was absolutely wrong. And nobody had taught me this, of course. I came to it on my own. But nobody corrected me either, and I wish they had. That I was, just, I was just building my theology based on my experience. It's how it played out for me. It seemed reasonable to me. It must be true. 
And it wasn't listening to sermons or reading Calvin or other writers that convinced me otherwise. I didn't even know uh, what Calvinism was. But I was reading the Bible to see what God said about specifically His sovereignty. And what changed my mind was the discovery in the Word of the greatness of God in all His attributes, in the transcendence of His holiness, right? how unlike anything or anyone else He is, and how clearly the Bible taught His absolute sovereignty. And we don't have time this morning to look at the nature and character of God. I mean, that's a, that's a lot. But we do have time, at least partially, to look at the sovereignty of God. And what you will find is His sovereignty in Scripture is absolute and unquestionable in every instance. The biblical confirmation of this is overwhelming. He is sovereign over every molecule in the material world. Jeremiah 10.13 He sends the rain and the wind and the lightning and the clouds. They move at His command. In Psalm 135, verse 6, The Lord does whatever pleases Him in heaven, on earth, and through all the seas. In Daniel, He supernaturally causes superheated flames of the furnace not to burn the three Hebrew boys. In 2 Kings, he makes an iron axe head to float to the top of a pond like a cork. In Exodus 20 and in Joshua, he parts oceans and rivers, commanding every drop of water to be sucked out of the mud so that the people can cross through on dry land. And when he speaks, every inanimate object, a molecule of water, is sucked out of that dirt and flees. He makes... Uh, he, he makes the sun stand still for Joshua on the field of battle. And he commands it to move back for Hezekiah. He's sovereign over all nature. He even sends wild animals to do his will. Either to kill, like the lions who devour the Assyrians in 2 Kings 17.26. Or he sends the wild animals to provide, like the ravens who take food to Elijah. We don't mind Him so much being sovereign over these inanimate or animal things, but He is also sovereign over kings in the course of nations. Kings rule and nations rise and fall according to the predetermined plan of God, and not a single nation does rise or does fall apart from His will. Habakkuk 1.6 For behold... God speaking through Habakkuk to the Israelites, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they, they were nomadic people. They became a great and powerful people, became the Babylonians. God says, I did that in order to come to Jerusalem and raise it to the ground. Daniel 2.21 It is He who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and He establishes kings. A few verses later, Daniel 4, 25 and 32. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and He gives them to whoever He wishes. Every election, every king, every dictator in the world, every world leader who is leading a nation today is in power and is in that place because God ordained it. There has never been a ruler whom God has not ordained, all the way from the Puritans to New England to the communists in China. God has done it all. When did He ordain these things? See, when did He ordain them? Consider God's response to the king of Assyria in 2 Kings 19.25. So he has come into the land of Judah. He is leveling it. He's killed hundreds of thousands of people. He's flattened cities. And so now he has Jerusalem surrounded. And he is yelling. Send some of his men to yell to the man on the walls. Gods of any of the other nations that we invaded and destroyed saved them. And so he's insulting the God of Israel. 
Hezekiah hears about it, hears about the boasting of Sennacherib, hears about his, his victories over the Israelites and the captured cities, hears him warning the people, don't trust in the Lord. And he goes to Hezekiah and they go to the temple and they pray. And after Hezekiah prays, God answers. This is what he says. This is his message to the king of Assyria. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? Everything you're boasting in, I determined it, God says, long ago. I planned from the days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. God did it. The Assyrian king is boasting in what he has done. God says, you wouldn't have been able to take one rock off of another had I not, in, uh, had I not ordained and enabled it. God ordained that the Assyrians would ransack Israel and Judah, raise them up for that very purpose, planned it, Long ago, his sovereignty couldn't be clearer. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He's sovereign also over Satan and all evil. I mean, we talked about this earlier, but just you know, Job 1, Matthew 8, Genesis 50.20, 2 Samuel 16.10, Amos 3.6, Acts 2.23. In all of those verses... Terrible things happen, and God makes it clear they happened according to His sovereign decree. He is sovereign over life and death. No one comes into this world and is born apart from Him, and nobody leaves this world apart from His decree. Deuteronomy 32-39 See now that I am He, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. And then, maybe most offensive of all, he is totally sovereign over the hearts and the ways of men as individuals and as groups. Just consider the clarity of these verses and ask yourself, is it hard to understand or is it just hard to take? Proverbs 16.9 The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. You plan. You make a plan. You really do. And every step you take is directed by God. And that doesn't mean it ought to be directed by the Word. That's not what it says. It says you make a plan, but every step you take, God has already planned. It's compared later on in the same chapter of Proverbs to the casting of a lot. He says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. You throw the dice, they land exactly as God has ordained them to land. In Genesis 26, God infringes upon the freedom of Abimelech, unbeknownst to Abimelech, in order to prevent him from sinning. It says, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. You have done it. You have not slept with Sarah. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Why did Abimelech not take Abraham's wife? God stopped him from doing it. Or Proverbs 16.4. Listen to this. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Even the wicked for the day of evil. God has made some people for the day of judgment. And their purpose in this life is to be judged. God unequivocally says, I have the right to do this. Jeremiah 18.6, Isaiah 45.9. It's right there in our passage this morning as well. Verse 10, If anyone is to be taken to captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Those words, is to be, it's often translated as destined. If God has destined one for the sword, then to the sword they will go. Now, maybe the most well-known example of this is, of course, Pharaoh, whom God says in Romans 9, 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Why did God raise up Pharaoh and make Egypt the greatest nation in the world? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is not hard to understand. God raised up Pharaoh for the express purpose of throwing him down, shattering his kingdom and him to involve the total annihilation of crops and, and, and animals and people and his army. And God did it so that the world around would hear and hearing they would fear the Lord. God is glorified as the world sees that no one, not even the greatest nation of the day, can stand against Him. And in this you see how it is also for our good that He ordains all things, isn't it? Even the wicked for the day of destruction. Because that fear of the Lord born from the annihilation of Egypt, that is what protected God's people while they were walking in the wilderness. Did you know that? The people, other nations, were afraid of Israel and they didn't want to fight them and they wouldn't attack them. They wouldn't dare because of what their God did to the Egyptians. So they left them alone. Which is why in Joshua... 11.20, maybe turn to Joshua 11.20, God actually has to harden the hearts of the Canaanites so that they would make war on the Israelites. You see that? The Israelites feared God, or the Canaanites feared God because of what He had done to the Egyptians. But in order to destroy them, God made their hearts hard made the Canaanites stop fearing God so that they would wage war against His people and be destroyed. Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was... The, so this is after the campaigns, Israelites have destroyed the Canaanites. Listen to what it says. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. It was the Lord's doing. What? Hardened the hearts of the Canaanites who previously feared God. That's what Rahab says, right? The fear of you is spread through all the land. That's why they didn't attack them in the wilderness. The God is with them. The God who did these great things to Egypt. And what does God do? Hardens their hearts so that they would forget how afraid they were, come out to fight Israel in order that they would be destroyed, devoted to destruction, and receive no mercy. God is absolutely free to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, to whoever He wants. And it's our prerogative to humble ourselves before Him. Psalm 115.3 But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And He is pleased to elect some unto salvation. And it's those whose names are written in the book. You want to know how your name gets in there? God writes it there. And He writes it there apart from anything you say or do or have done or will do. God ordains and appoints those whom He wills to be saved. Acts 16.14 A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why was Lydia able to believe when she heard the gospel preached by Paul? Acts 16 tells us, God opened her heart. And if God never opened her heart, which He did, but if He did not, it would have stayed closed and she would not have believed and would have been lost. Or Acts 13.48 And when the Gentiles heard this, the preaching of Paul, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And so they heard the Gospel. They're rejoicing. And then what do we read? And as many as were appointed... What's that word appointed mean? Selected and placed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There was a specific number who believed. Those who were appointed to eternal life. 
of the Gentiles who heard the gospel that day, those who believed were those whom God appointed or chosen or elected for eternal life. In John 1.13, people believe and become children of God. And we're told, not according to the will of man or his decisions, but according to the will of God. John 6.44, no one can come to me, Jesus says. No one has the ability to come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only people who come to Christ are those whom the Father draws. And if God doesn't draw, they don't come. God initiates. John 13.18, Jesus speaking to the twelve, I am not speaking about all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Why does the Lord say, the eleven who will remain will remain? Not because of them. The reason they will remain is because of Him. He chose them again in John 15, 16. You did not choose Me, but I chose you. You say, well, that's referring to them being chosen as apostles. No, it's not referring to them being apostles because when He says, I know whom I have chosen, He is, he is excluding Judas. He is excluding Judas, whom Jesus hand-picked, did choose to be a disciple. And so when he says, I know whom I have chosen, he is not speaking about chosen to be disciples. He is speaking about chosen to remain, chosen to not fall away. One of you will fall away, but I'm not speaking about all of you because I know whom I have chosen. That can't be referring to his selecting the twelve. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose these Thessalonians for two things to be sanctified and to be saved by belief in the truth. They believe because God chose them to be saved. And there are dozens. Dozens more verses, and we really haven't even touched the big ones like Ephesians 1 or Romans 9. But if the Bible is clear about anything, it's crystal clear about this. God is totally sovereign over His creation and the destiny of all mankind. Just if you wonder, just go through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation and write down every time it says, the Lord has done this. So you want to know why your name is written in the book of life? It doesn't have anything to do with you. And it has everything to do with God's sovereign choice. He elects unto salvation and chooses those who will be saved. That's a, a biblical word, by the way, to describe Christians. We, by God, in His Word, over 20 times are called chosen or elect. If I were to greet you this morning saying, Good morning to the elect. Or good morning to those chosen by God. I would not be doing anything differently than the apostles did. And if you say, well, all that election and choosing business, that just refers to the election of Israel or God's choosing of them. Well, I don't think the passages on election teach that, but even if they did, it doesn't solve anything. God still sovereignly selected Egypt or Israel instead of the Egyptians or the Midianites or the Philistines or the Amorites or whatever other group. God elected Israel to be His covenant people and them alone, even at the expense of other peoples. I mean, at the very least... It proves that God is in the habit of choosing some and not others. God is sovereign over the souls of mankind, and He has mercy on whom He wills and elects them to inherit the promises, and He hardens whom He wills and lets them go. There's no getting around it. And we don't have to, nor should we want to, because election in the Bible, it's never presented as a doctrine to frustrate or confound God's people. It is always used in Scripture to comfort God's people in the face of adversity. That's the point. That's how the doctrine is used. And now that we have our minds filled with thoughts on the freedom and sovereignty of God over all things, we can hopefully and humbly be encouraged by this great and glorious assurance of Revelation 13.10. Those who are destined for captivity, right, those who are destined to worship the beast, will worship the beast. And those who are destined for the sword, for judgment, to the sword they must go. And those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, they are destined for life. Life everlasting. And this 
is the endurance and faith of the saints. Here at the end of verse 10, it's probably the worst translation of a verse in the whole English Standard Version. In the original manuscripts, that word, a call, those words, not there. Not in the Greek. And if you were to take a pen and scratch out those words, a call, you would have an improvement. Now, I'm not, I, I wouldn't dare say you can improve upon the Bible, but you can improve upon a piece of bad translation. These words make a difference. If it's a call for something, it means there's something for us to do. Right? We have been called to endure and to exercise faith. And by doing so, and doing so diligently, we prevail against the beast. Right? To the degree that we're faithful, to the degree that we endure, we will do well, we will be saved, we will persevere and overcome. And that's true to an extent. Yes, we, we are called to persevere, we are commanded to overcome, but that's not what this passage is saying. It's not a call to endurance in faith. It's the assurance that you will endure and have faith. It's not, this is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Here is the endurance and faith of the saints. This passage is saying that your name written in the book of life is your endurance and your faith. Now, of course, we're called to have faith and to persevere, but how do you know that you will? Right? You say, yes, we're called to, yes, yeah. How do you know that you are going to persevere until the end? You will. Because God has ordained it before you were ever born. That's how you know you're not doomed to worship the beast or destined for the judgment or for the sword. Long before there ever was a beast, God wrote your name in that book. And long after the beast is gone, it will remain. God Himself is the guarantor of your salvation. You didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't have to gain it, and you can't lose it. I mean, long before a single ray of light was spoken into existence, or a drop of water formed, or a molecule of matter even made, God set His love upon you and chose you for Himself. And if that's the case, if your salvation, if the promises of God towards you are built on a foundation that stretches all the way back to before the foundation of the world, what could possibly frustrate them? Who can obstruct God? Will the beast devour you or Satan destroy you? Can the world do anything to imperil the souls of those who belong to God through Christ? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You who are in Christ, God has a plan for your life. And that plan is to overcome all adversity. The plan is to endure. The plan is to hold fast. And even if you perish to inherit eternal life, if you are a Christian, that is your destiny. Not to fall, not to fail, not to fall away, but to persevere until the end. I mean, some of you, you are, you are so worried when tribulation comes, and it has. And when it seems like the whole world is worshiping at the foot of some demonic idea, when it all becomes hostile to Christianity, you worry, don't you? And you know what the fear is? Either one... Your faith will fail and you'll fall away. Or two, the pressure is just going to get too great. And you'll compromise and you're not going to be able to endure. And you're worried about those things. Well, where do you turn? Your own steadfastness and ability to press on? John turns us to the electing, sovereign grace of God. He didn't decide just to love you at some point after you were born, God. No, God never changes. And because He never changes, it means the love He has for you, the salvation He's planned for you, the deliverance and life He will give to you existed in eternity past and will continue in time immortal. It's like you're reading a book. And you're worried. You're anxious for one of the characters. He's in a terrifying situation. His life is on the line. The future hangs in the balance. You don't know what's going to happen to your, to your hero. You don't know what the next page is hold. But imagine the author was there and when he saw your anxiety, he leaned in and whispered, don't worry, I love him. And before I ever began to write the book, I had wonderful plans to preserve him through it all. 
I know it looks grim in chapter 13, but just wait until you see what happens at the end. God is the author, not of a book, but of all things. And He has written your story out before you were ever even a thought in your parents' minds. He knows the plans He has for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's how you know you won't fail. God will keep you. That's how you know you won't finally get swept up in all of the confusion and temptation and deception of the day. God will guard you. That's how you know your endurance and your exercise of faith will be effective. God will hold you and will make it so. He's already planned your perseverance. He's already decreed your deliverance. He's, he's written out the life, the entire life, unto eternal life of everyone who is in Christ. And you will have mountains and valleys and beachheads and barren wastes and vanity fairs and doubting castles, but no matter the path, it is a path God has traced for you from before you were born, and it always ends in glory. That is how your story ends. God has ordained it from before the foundation of the world, and He will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Your sovereignty this morning, Lord, that it would have its intended effect of encouraging Your people and giving glory to Your name. You have not destined those who have put their faith in Christ for destruction. You have destined us, Lord, for everlasting life. You have destined us for perseverance, for adoption as sons. You have destined us not to be swept up in the chaos of the age and worship the beast, worship these terrible ideas that all oppose You, God. You preserve Your people to the end and on into eternity. Lord, thank You that You are good and You are trustworthy. Thank You that You never make a mistake. That You never do anything wrong. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us all to humbly trust You in all things, knowing, Lord, that You are working them for our good and for Your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.